Good evening. Great to see all of you. Um, you guys should have talked with the last service and distributed things a little bit better because it was there was no room in here last service and plenty of room this service. So, but way to go, uh, pushing through the cold, the what, 75 below wind chill or whatever it was. Pretty, pretty cool. You know, the instructions about fire, too. Um, if, if you plan on not following our instructions, please let us know because we'd like to videotape it when you catch on fire. It's so cool uh, later to watch. We, I, I, I told John you ought to put together, there was one service two or three years ago where he knocked over, I think it was... I think it was the advent candles while moving the TV, and so, you know, fire went down here. Somebody caught their hair on fire sitting right over here. We had somebody videotaping you all when that happened, and we have it, and it went like that. It just, just went up. It was so exciting, and uh, it would have been good to get again. Well, Merry Christmas. Uh, nobody was hurt when that happened, by the way, so that's why I can laugh about it. And uh, Merry Christmas and Blessed Christmas, and uh, so glad, so glad you're here. Uh, today we're going to be looking again at uh, something we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, really for about three weeks now, uh, the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to be zeroing in on one phrase from that story, and the phrase is, they bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down and they worshipped him. And so... Um, we're going to break down the they, bowed down and worshipped, and then him. Those are going to be the, the three things that we're going to look at, look at. So we like to say around here that understanding the Bible and our part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, so we look into the Bible. So I invite you, if you'd like, to open to Matthew chapter 2 and follow along. We're going to be reading the passage in just a few moments. And if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 966. So there's Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's page 966 if you want to open up there. So we're going to be looking at the Magi. Uh, and they are just these great, they represent seekers everywhere. That, that was really, I mean, they were, they were real. But as you read the story, you go, this is, this is a story about seeking. And there's not a whole lot that we actually know about the Magi. Uh, we know... A lot of general things, but it's very hard to know who these magi exactly were and what they believed and all those sort of thing, things. But what we do, from what we do know, we know that they weren't just looking for a newborn king. They come looking for a newborn king, but they weren't just looking for a newborn king. The magi were looking for, especially when you consider all the trouble that they went through, they were looking for something than just a new king has been born. They're looking for something that is going to bring some satisfaction or some meaning or some purpose or some happiness to them, some peace to them. They're searching for that. We're all searching for that in our lives. And what it is can go by a lot of different names. We're going to look at something that St. Augustine said uh, many, many centuries ago about our rest and finding our rest. That's another way of talking about that sense of satisfaction, that sense of purpose that we are all looking for. And we'll look at what, what that means. What does Augustine mean when he says, we find our rest in God? So the Magi have come to rep represent seekers everywhere. But interestingly, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that they are not the ultimate seekers in the story. Somebody else is the ultimate seeker in the story. And when we discover the ultimate seeker in the story, we're going to be a lot closer to finding that fulfillment, that peace, that rest that Augustine talked about. And I want to invite you to pray with me as we pray the prayer of illumination. 
this is a prayer that we're going to use. We're going to do something a little different over the next couple of months, two to three months. We're going to pray it together. We're going to use the same prayer every week. The idea being that, the hope being that as we pray it each week together, the more that we pray it, the more that prayer is going to become something that comes right out of our hearts to the hearts of God, the heart of God. So please pray out loud with me from the screens as I pray. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray, that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's follow along uh, in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, as one of our Five Oaks families reads the passage to us. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, so we're looking at that phrase um, that you can see there where it says they bowed down when they found the child, they bowed down and they worshiped him. The they in the phrase, of course, as we're going to just look at the they to begin with here, the they, uh, the they in there refers to the Magi. And um, at this time of year, we often hear the line or see the line, we might see it on a beautiful picture or on a poster or in the front of a church, a line that says, wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. And when it, you see that, it's, it's referencing the Magi in this story. And because they're, they're associated with wisdom and they're associated with seeking. So when I think of spiritual seeking, I think of this, this saying by St. Augustine that maybe, maybe, maybe you've heard of, maybe you've heard of um, over the years. And here's what he wrote. He says, you have made us, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What he's talking about here is a restlessness that's in all of us that translates into a life of seeking happiness and purpose and meaning or fulfillment and satisfaction. 
And the Magi have come to represent seekers everywhere. Uh, but who are they exactly? They, uh, Magi originally were a special class of Babylonian priests. And they, you can find them if you go in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, and you go to the book of Daniel, you'll find Magi there. They're, uh, I know in the NIV, the New International Version, the one that we're using, it just calls them magicians. But it's the same group of people. They worked as advisors to the king. And they were known for several things. They, they specialized in astrology. They interpreted dreams. They looked at various um, things that happened, and somebody says, why did this happen? You know, I just saw this thing, and it really threw me off, and they'll try to bring meaning to that. They, they practiced uh, magical arts. These are some of the things that they were known for, and they were found all over the Roman Empire, and so the book of Daniel happens hundreds of years before, but they were still around in the time of Jesus, but they had spread out uh, into various countries and various places, uh, but they were still mostly associated with that region of Babylon, which is known as Babylonia at the time. And it's probably what it's talking about when it says these. We just don't know exactly what country they were from. So one person who's done a lot of study on this um, and has an interesting way of, of getting you to think about things, he says, it's kind of like if you try to think of astrology wizards, it's kind of what they are because they do the magical arts and at the same time they're looking at astrology and all that sort of thing. Or you can call them space wizards. That would be a way of kind of maybe saying who they are today. And we don't know a lot about them. We don't know how many there were. I could have tested you. I could have asked you how many think, you know, one, two, three. We always think it's three, but we really don't know. It, the text doesn't tell us. There are three gifts, but it doesn't say that there were three magi. We don't know when they arrived to see Jesus. I mean, the common theory is that they arrived when Jesus was, you know, a, a toddler, you know, probably maybe within a year and a half, a year after being born, that sort of thing. It kind of is explained by the fact that they had you know, they're not in a stable anymore, and, and some of the other explanations are, are given. You know, Herod has children two and under, you know, by the timing. He looks at the timing of when this was supposed to have happened. And, and so those are some of the reasons. But you can also make a strong case, and I could make a strong case for you to say, no, they probably got there uh, soon after Jesus was born. They were in a house because the stable was in the house. Uh, stable was in the bottom part of the house. That's how the stables usually were at that time. Now, we do know a few things. We know they weren't kings. They were magi. Magi were not kings. Um, all in all, we do know that no one in Jerusalem, or hardly anybody in Jerusalem, would have called them wise men. They were outsiders. And yet they outshine the insiders in the story. The religious leaders don't, look, don't go looking for the baby Jesus. When, they, when the, these outsiders come in and say, Hey, we've seen the star, and it lines in this way, and we think there's a newborn baby king in the land. The religious leaders don't go see him. Herod, and it says all Jerusalem, are disturbed by the news uh, that possibly a king has been born, possibly the Messiah has been born. In contrast to everyone else in the story, the Magi seek the king, and then they find him, and they worship him. There's a lot that we can learn about seeking from the Magi. For one thing, they had to have been relentless to travel hundreds of miles, most likely, in order to get to Jerusalem. At the least, it would have to be 100, 200 miles that they would have had to travel, depending on where they were from in the east. They um, had to have been willing to sacrifice a lot because it would take a lot of money uh, and time to be able to travel that distance. 
probably had an entourage and the meals and everything that goes into that. And they brought very expensive gifts. And so they were willing to sacrifice. They practiced great patience and in seeking, it's something that comes in handy, patience. They had no phones, no internet. They had no postal service. Um, they couldn't go on Google and find answers to their questions. Uh, finding answers took a very long time, and they were humble. They did something that a lot of us aren't willing to do. They stopped, and they asked for directions when they got to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot that we can learn about seeking from the Magi. They've come to represent seekers everywhere, but they are not the ultimate seekers in the story. Hold on for a few more minutes, and we'll get to that. All right, so uh, the next part of the phrase that we're looking at is, they, we know that are the Magi. The second part is bowed down and worship. They bowed down and worshiped this baby that they found that they believed was a newborn king. So um, let's go back to the saying of Augustine for a moment. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself. We are made for God. He's talking about being made for a relationship, a specific relationship, a relationship with God, a relationship of love, a relationship of awe, a, a relationship of wonder with the God who has created the entire universe and is God over the entire universe. The Bible clearly makes this point from the very beginning. And the Bible tells a story of the lengths that God is willing to go through to reconcile and renew that relationship. The Bible is not primarily a rule book for living. It's a, it's a story. It's a story about how much God loves us. And in spite of his love, how we kind of rebel against him and his leadership in our lives and we go our own way and we do our own thing and we mess up his world. And then the lengths that God will go through to seek to reconcile us to him, to seek to renew the relationship that we were meant to have with him. This means we are made for something. We are made for something. We don't make sense apart from that something. Now, I don't know in your house, but in my house, if you find something, and I've got one in my pocket, I found this, a few weeks ago, when I was thinking about this and talking about this today, I went to the drawer where we keep the little things like this. So it's a little piece of plastic. And I found it on the floor, and it's very obvious that it belongs to something. And if you find something like this in your house, you go running around, and you say, you ask everybody, do you know what this goes to? Look, it obviously goes to something. What is it? And you ask you know, around, and nobody knows what it is. And eventually, you take it, and you you know, put it away, maybe in a drawer. I found this one in a drawer, sometimes on a shelf somewhere. You put it there thinking it may belong to something that you use, you know, I may use this once a year, you know, and, and, uh, or I may use this intermittently, or I may not have seen yet until I go to change the battery or something. This might be a battery, something that holds a battery in. I'll show you a picture of it here. You can see it's obviously made for something. It didn't come off a factory line, and you go out and you buy this thing. 
to sit by itself. It, it fits. It's not really clear, but there's a little button type thing here. It doesn't push, but it, you know, you can, like with your finger, you can grab it. And then there's, there's this thing, it hooks into something, then it clicks in. These are little click things that are right there. It obviously belongs to something. It, and and uh, it's, it's like us. We are made, Augustine says, we're made for God. Our purpose is tied to God. We're restless until we find him. If this thing could feel, it would be restless sitting in a drawer because it's not being used for whatever it was made for. So the Protestant reformer John Calvin, he talked about the human heart and the human mind, and he said the human heart and the human mind is like a perpetual idol factory. In other words, we're constantly making things up or conjuring things in our minds or forming things with our hands that we make ultimate in our lives. We make it the thing that we want. We conjure something, we see something, it can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be money, it can be a vacation, it can be experience, whatever it is, but we conjure it in our minds as if it were a God. It's an idol, that's what it is. It's something we attach our meaning to and our purpose to. And he said, we are like virtual idol factories. Another person who speaks about the fact that we're always trying to worship something, worship idols, worship something, um, is an author, David Foster Wallace, the late David Foster Wallace. He wasn't an adherent to Christianity. Um, stories told that a couple of times he tried to join the Catholic Church by going through their classes, but when he came to the end, he said, I just can't believe it. I just am not convinced that this is the truth. So he really never attached himself to Christianity. But he was speaking a commencement speech. He wrote a few books that a lot of people really loved and some people hated, <laughs> but he was speaking at a university a few years before he took his own life. And um, he got talking at that university about worship. I don't think anybody was expecting it, but he said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. In other words, he's saying, we all know this. We know it makes us miserable when we elevate things, but that is what the human being does. All of our idols have bad endings because they can't do what only God can do. An idol can't do what only God can do. So if Augustine, if Calvin, if Wallace, if the Bible is right, that we are made for God and that we are made for worship, when God calls us to worship him and God says, worship me and worship no one else, God has what's in our best interests in mind. He's not just focusing on himself. He's not saying, hey, you know, I need to be worshipped. He doesn't need to be worshipped. 
but he has made us for that. He has made us for something ultimate, and he is the only ultimate. He's the only ultimate and the one that we worship. So apparently in this scene from the gospel story, the Magi, after a long search, they find their rest. They find their purpose in the newborn baby. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Which brings us to the last word in that phrase, which is the hymn uh, in this story. So earlier I said there is a lot that we can learn about searching, spiritual searching, from the Magi. They've come to represent seekers everywhere, but they're not the ultimate seeker in this story. So who is the ultimate seeker? The ultimate seeker in this story is the hymn of the story, the one the Magi worshipped. The hymn is, of course, the baby, Jesus. Now, let me explain what I mean that he is the ultimate seeker by talking a little bit about a big theological word that we hear a lot at this time of year, and the big theological word is the word incarnation. So incarnation is a term that the church over the centuries, the um, theologians, church people, it's a term that they use to refer, what we use to refer to what happened when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, a flesh and blood man. He incarnated. So God the Son, the scripture is very clear, didn't pose as a man. He didn't pretend to be a man. He became truly human while remaining truly divine. That's what incarnation is about. It's a big concept. It's an incredible concept. And it's really a concept that ties into this whole idea of God being a seeker. So there's a theologian, Fred Sanders, I was reading something he wrote recently, an article, and uh, he was saying that uh, one of his little pet peeves when he goes to church around Christmas time is, especially like nights like tonight, we're having a Christmas service or Christmas Eve service or a Christmas Day service. He said, the pastors have a tendency to fly right over Christmas and go to Easter. It's like, no, no, this is Christmas. Easter is super important. We ought to be thinking about Easter, the resurrection, the cross, all of that. But don't miss the depth of Christmas. Don't fly over too fast. Because he says what the Bible says about incarnation is absolutely profound. It's something that we ought to plant ourselves on and spend some time thinking about. So this is what he writes. He says, the, the son of God's first step in carrying out the plan of salvation was to move into human nature itself, the nature that makes all humans human. He took that nature into personal union with himself. By becoming incarnate, the son made himself personally present to humanity in an unprecedentedly intimate way. He did something that, that nobody could have expected, that nobody did expect, that is unbelievable. He became human, and that just shows his intimacy um, with humanity. So here's another way to put this. Before Jesus dies for us, he comes looking for us by becoming one of us so that he can be with us and we can find him. Do you hear that? Before Jesus dies for us, he comes looking for us. Before Good Friday... He comes looking for us by becoming one of us, incarnation, so that he can be with us and we can find him. 
the Magi, they leave their homes. They travel probably hundreds of miles to find Jesus. That's, that's pretty serious spiritual seeking. But God, God the Son, leaves the heavenly realm. God the Son leaves the heavenly throne to take on, to become a human, to be born a human baby in a feeding trough. The ultimate secret in this story is the baby Jesus. He comes looking for us, becoming one of us so that we might find him. Jesus came seeking you. So why does this feel sometimes like he seems so far away, so distant, so impossible to find? I think part of the reason is because we live in a world and we live in a, I mean, we always have. We live in, with minds that are filled with doubts. And doubts are normal. It's part of the human condition. Uh, it's to be expected. But doubts can really begin to chip away at our sense of whether, you know, are we really, is this God real? Am I really sensing him or is this something else? And after a while, we even stop looking for him in many, many ways. Sometimes it feels like he's hard to find because we're going through a hard time or someone we love is going through a hard time and we pray for them and we pray for ourselves and we ask God to just fix the situation or at least in the middle of it, just bring some relief of the situation. And sometimes all we, we get back is nothing. It's just silence. God doesn't do the very thing that we asked of him. And, um, and so we feel like, well, you know, he's, he's far away. Sometimes we feel that way because how we understand Christianity doesn't tie, it doesn't seem to be relevant in our everyday lives. So when I think about this sense of God being far away, I think of a story of something that happened to me several years ago. It's kind of a, you can say this, this story is like a metaphor for a seeking God, a God who is seeking us out and we're not maybe paying attention uh, or listening well enough or really looking for him. It was during Advent a few years ago, probably close to 10 years ago. We were having Advent services in the morning at the time. It was on Thursday mornings. And I left the house uh, to come down here. We came in separate cars. Lois was going to work, and I was staying here, so came in separate cars. And, uh, and, and so um, I came. I sat on about the third row, about one seat in, leave one open for Lois for when she comes. And I sat down. I had no duties. I was just going to take in the service. Lois was not far behind me because I saw her pull out in my rearview mirror. And, um, and you know, she, she had to have been very close to me. Maybe she got a light, you know, that slowed her down. She wasn't here when I got here, that sort of thing. So I sat down, and as the service progressed, no Lois. She doesn't find me. So I checked my phone. I'm thinking, if something happened, she'd communicate with me, right? She'd send me a text, no text was on my phone. Um, uh, I looked around me. I looked kind of this way. I looked that way. No, no Lois. One of the pastors, um, Dan Lucas, if you all remember him, Dan was setting up the passage that we were looking at that day. It was a passage from one of the prophets. It's when, it's at a time when Jerusalem is surrounded by enemy armies. God is saying to them, you're not going to win. <laughs> you are going to be defeated. And I have uh, brought judgment on you, and I've lifted my hand of protection. And there's really nothing you can do except repent 
and live in despair. And so, you know, as he's, you know, setting this passage up and, you know, this utter despair, I'm, I'm starting to get more worried. I mean, my sense of anxiety, the Lois isn't there and she hasn't communicated with me. I check my phone again, nothing. Um, I'm, I'm getting really, really worried. And I'm wondering, is this going to be my moment of despair? You know, is, can she not communicate because she's in a ditch somewhere and she's, she's dead or something? And my mind went there, and uh, the whole setup for the passage was uh, not helpful <laughs> at that point. So I went out into the commons. I'm like, I got to call her. And I called her, and I got no answer, still no messages. I thought, she's probably okay. You know, it's just one of those weird things. Who knows? Who knows why? So I came back in, and as I'm walking in to come to sit right two or three rows up here, there's Lois sitting directly behind me, right where I can't see her if I, if I look back, all right, directly behind me. And so I scoot in, um, she's sitting next to someone, and I scoot in next to her, and you know, one of those situations where you feel relieved, but at the same time, you're angry? <laughs> like, what were you, what were you? you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay calm, and I say, Lois, you know, why didn't you sit with me? And she says, um, because Laura was sitting right behind you when you came in, and you left her there alone and sat down in front of her. Well, Laura was our, um, is, is our, one of our daughter-in-law's sister, and she lived with us for about three or four months. And she had come to the service, and I'd walk right, behind, right by her. I didn't see her. I didn't notice her, uh, which is what I do. I'm really good at not noticing things. Last week during the Advent service, uh, the family Advent service, uh, I think it was Laura Page, she was up here and she says, yeah, I'm sure you noticed the 300 pairs of shoes when you came in. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, what shoes? Didn't see them. And, uh, and that's what I do. That's what I'm really good at. And so I, I looked at her, I said, oh, well, why didn't you let me know you're sitting behind me? She said, I did. I tapped you on the shoulder and you ignored me. I, I really, I honestly, I hadn't noticed that anybody had tapped me on the shoulder. Now, let me be clear about why I'm telling this story. This text from Matthew, the story, the incarnation, is God tapping you on the shoulder. And I hope you're hearing that. It's God tapping you on the shoulder. And you might think, God doesn't care about me. God is silent when I pray. God is distant. But God in the incarnation, the whole purpose of Christmas is God tapping you on the shoulder. He's doing it right now. And he's saying, I do care about you. I actually do. I care enough to come and incarnate. I love you that much. I want to be with you. I am Emmanuel. God with you. I am. I am God with you. I have no idea what had my attention uh, that moment. It doesn't take very much for me not to notice something. But I didn't notice Lois tapping me on the shoulder. And I don't know in your life what gets most of your attention, what might be getting most of your attention right now. But if your attention is completely captured by your troubles or 
by your questions or by the things that you've made idols in your life, then Christmas is God's reminder to you that He is seeking you. That He's the ultimate seeker. He came seeking you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And we can remember that whether we've been in a long-time relationship with Jesus and are still seeking Him to know Him better. Or maybe we're going through a time of doubt where maybe at some point in your life you were a devout seeker of God, lover of God, and you walked away from Him. Or whether you've never been in any kind of relationship with Him, but you're asking questions and you're wondering. He's tapping you on the shoulder. He's saying, I am seeking you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've given us reason to rejoice. We may have a lot of reasons in our life right now to also experience loneliness, anxiety, fear, deep grief. But Father, at the same time, we can rejoice in you, even as we experience those difficult emotions. Reveal your love to us again. I pray that any of us, whatever has our attention right now, that we would put our attention on you. I pray for the person who doesn't really know you personally, that they would take a step closer to you as they think this Christmas about you coming and becoming truly human while continuing to be truly divine. I pray for those who are ready to step across that line of faith and put their faith in you and ask you for forgiveness. I pray that they would ask you to be their God, ask you to be their Lord and Savior. I pray that just in the quiet of these moments that they would, that they would ask you to be their God and Savior. Father, I pray for all of us as we continue to seek you, to know you better through the ups and downs of life, through the times of doubt, times that so many shiny things capture our attention and take it away from you, for all the times we take what you have created, even things that you have blessed us with, that we take them and we make them the ultimate thing. Forgive us, Father. Help us to see you through those things and to put our hearts on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.